will vary. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Today we're going to look at some very serious issues. I received an email from a, a dear brother, a very kind email. I want to read it for you. It says, Hi, Pastor Greenley. I've been listening to your radio broadcast for a couple of weeks now and have some concerns about some of your statements. It sounds a lot like you're claiming that we must not sin to be saved. Is this what you're stating? I agree that all who are saved should strive not to sin as we continue in our progressive sanctification. And one who continues in sin with no remorse or attempts to change their sinful condition demonstrates a sign they may not be regenerate. However, according to 1 John, we all sin and to claim otherwise is to call God a liar. It sounds on your broadcast like you're saying all those who are saved do not sin and will not sin. And we know this is untrue by Scripture. The Apostle Paul continued to struggle with sin after his salvation. Could you clarify, please? And this comes from a brother who is a doctor of theology. And as I considered his email, I decided that probably this is an email that I need to answer. But not in person. These are very serious issues that he has raised. It will take me several days to walk through all of the concerns that he has. If you listen to the content of this email, it is clear that this servant of the Lord believes the theology of our day and many of the historic beliefs that we in the Christian church have held. The problem is each little piece a little off from the scripture, combines to make a theology that puts the Christian church in chains and casts down the blood of Jesus Christ, making it of no more effect than the blood of bulls or goats under the old covenant. So I'm going to walk through a number of these statements and try to pull apart each belief, each part of the puzzle, until we have a very clear picture of what we're dealing with. You see, it's not what I believe or what you believe that matters. And I have to very humbly say to you, I'm not the brightest light bulb on the block. 
I have struggled all my life to understand the gospel, to come out from under all of the false teaching that I was given both in undergraduate and graduate, both in my home that I was raised in and then the teaching of the church today. As I have struggled in my own life, and this has not been a mere academic exercise, this has been a struggle of my soul. How can I find the way to a living God where my sins are not just forgiven but are removed? Where can I find the truth of the gospel? And so I studied many of the great theologians of ancient history and of our day, searching them for truth. Finally, the Lord spoke to me. And he said to me, if you want my power, read my word. See, while I was in seminary, I studied the scriptures from an academic perspective, but never once in my seminary life was I ever encouraged to simply read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's taken me some time, but over the last years I've read from Genesis to Revelation way more than 50 times, beginning to understand the way one part is connected to another part, and I began to get very specific revelation. And then I had to go back and check and say, okay, am I the only one who believes this? Or have others also believed these same things? And very quickly I began to discover great men of God who had discovered the same truths. One that may be best known for you is a wonderful a wonderful minister of the gospel by the name of John Wesley. My heritage in my family has been Wesleyan. Old-fashioned John Wesley theology, not the modern wickedness of the Methodist Church, not the seeker-sensitive Methodist Church, that is rapidly moving toward the acceptance of homosexuality. But the old-fashioned John Wesley, going back to his writings and understanding them, and of course, much of what he understood came from a man by the name of Artemis. He stood in direct opposition to the teachings of Calvinism. And today, we have a mixture of low Arminianism and hyper-Calvinism. Those two have blended together. So that now the belief is that you must always strive to be without sin, but you can never be without sin. So I don't want to approach this from strictly an academic perspective. I want to give a, a bit of just brief historical background. And then I want to go directly to portions in Scripture 
See, I don't believe that it's what men teach that brings salvation. I believe it's what the scriptures teach. They are my final authority. I believe that the scriptures were inspired by God. I believe that the scriptures are the final and full authority regarding salvation and the way of life. So I'm going to believe what the scriptures teach. I have to be very upfront with you. I read the book of Romans time after time after time, struggling, crying out before the Lord, saying, Lord, I just don't understand this book. It doesn't make sense to me. Would you please unfold the book of Romans to me? And in time, Jesus unfolded the truth of the gospel to me from the book of Romans. But we're not going to begin today in the book of Romans. We're going to begin today in the book of First John, the epistle of John. There is a very common theme in the church today. I hear it constantly from, from many people. Let me read it for you. It's found in First John. And the eighth verse, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And of course, in this brother's email, that was the statement that he made. I'll read it for you again. However, according to 1 John, we all sin, and to claim otherwise is to call God a liar. It sounds on your broadcast like you are saying all those who are saved do not sin and will not sin. We know that's untrue by Scripture. Do we really know that's untrue by Scripture? Before we're finished, I hope to show you that that is exactly what the Scriptures teach, and to believe that you must continue in sin is to call God a liar. But we'll walk through that carefully. First, I'd like to give just a bit of background, and I'm going to do that by briefly sharing with you a portion of a book called The Fallacy of the Sinning Christian, A Call to Reform, by Dr. Malcolm L. Lavender. He was a wonderful Greek scholar. He has now passed and gone to his reward. But this book was a very helpful tool in my hand to begin to understand the gospel as Jesus presents it, as the scriptures share it, not as the modern church shares it. He writes on page 7, the testimony of the apostolic fathers demonstrates that the prevailing opinion of their day was that Christians live above sin in the body. In A.D. 97, Clement of Rome wrote to the Corinthians, but those who are perfect in love by the grace of God have a place among the pious who shall be made manifest at the visitation of the kingdom of Christ. A.D. 115, Ignatius says, the tree is known by its fruits, so those who profess to be of Christ shall be seen by their deeds 
for the deed is not in present profession, but is shown by the power of faith, if a man continue to the end. In A.D. 148, Hermas wrote, He said to me, You have heard correctly, for that is so. For he who has received remission of sin ought never to sin again, but to live in purity. In A.D. 150, that wonderful Christian man by the name of Polycarp says, For if one be in this company, he has fulfilled the command of righteousness, for he who has love is far from all sin. Justin Martyr in A.D. 155 wrote, To acknowledge this Christ, to be washed in the fountain spoken of by Isaiah for the remission of sins, and henceforth to live without sin. A.D. 185, Irenaeus says, And through obedience doing away with disobedience completely, for he bound the strong man and set free the weak and endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin. It is the testimony of history that for the first 200 years, the New Testament church taught that a man was not to walk in sin, that he was transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. He was a new creature in Christ. I'll show you soon that this is the same that the Apostle Paul taught. Some would claim, as this brother does in his email, that the Apostle Paul sinned until the day he died. That goes directly against his testimony. And so, if we say he is calling himself a sinner after he received Jesus Christ, and yet he claims he was not a sinner after he received Jesus Christ, then we have a contention, don't we? We have a contradiction. And I don't believe the scriptures contradict themselves. But it is necessary to allow the scriptures to explain the scriptures, not human wisdom or human authority. By the third century, the heretical doctrine of the sinning Christian had usurped ascendancy in the church as consistent with Christianity. And that today is the position of the modern church. And look where the teaching of the modern church has taken us in America. Sadly, this position dominates the church world unto this day, being a position of reformation and reformed thought. Charles Brown, in his book, The Apostolic Church, makes a reference to the position held by H. Windisch, the great Swiss theologian. Brown says, The doctrine that most Christians sinned came in like a flood. H. Windisch maintained that it was Origen who legitimized sinfulness in Christendom. And we all know that Origen was a heretic of the worst kind. 
So the great compromise begins. The floodgates of hell are opened. The throne of damnation seizes the day. The so-called Christian world has lost the Savior who saves, accepting another Jesus who does not save people from sin while in the body in this life. Tertullian, in 160 to 230 A.D., wrote, There are some sins of daily committal to which we are liable for who will be free from using manual violence or else carelessly speaking evil or else rashly swearing or else lying from bashfulness or necessity. This is the new attitude towards sin. The centuries are doomed to darkness. And that is when the darkness flooded into the church. Righteousness was cast down. And it was taught that we should be comfortable in our sin, that we should just do the best we could do. Gnosticism literally took over the church. Christian descent was utterly unable to alter this flood tide of iniquity as it swept through the church for more than 1,300 years. Thus, anti-Christian doctrines of the sinning Christian reigned unsuppressed from the 3rd century to the 6th, or from Origen the heretic to Artemis. Some noble dissenters did take a stand against the sinning Christian, but changes did not take place yet. Even as late as the 5th century, when Pelagius was cited, the doctrine of sinlessness was admitted to be true, Dr. Adolf Harnack, in his monumental work, History of Dogma, wrote, When Plagius was charged with teaching that man could be sinless and needed no divine help, the latter, Plagius, declared that he taught that it was not possible for man to become sinless without divine grace. With this, John, Bishop of Jerusalem, entirely agreed. Now, it should be noted that Plagius was a heretic because he denied that man was born with a carnal nature or a sinful nature. Necessarily inherent to this teaching was the further implication that denied to the atonement its essence, the removal of all sin in this life. For sin not believed to exist cannot be removed. So while Plagius denied the carnal or sin nature and necessarily the atonement made for it, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin differ only in another extreme. They take the the Gnostic position that sin cannot be removed so long as man is in the body. The blood atonement of Christ then is impugned and brought down to the level of an animal sacrifice, neither of which removes sin in this life. So whether the sin nature is denied, and consequently not removed, as it was with Plagius, or it can be denied that 
sin nature can be removed in this life, the results are equal to each other. The gospel is pillaged and man is left without deliverance from sin in this life. And you see, this is where I have agonized before God. This is not just an academic question. The question is, can I have victory over all sin in my life? That was the agony of my soul. I did not want anything between my heart and God's heart. I wanted to be washed by the blood of Jesus, and I wanted to be forgiven for my sin, and I wanted that sin to be removed from my life. And I am here today to praise the name of Jesus and say that that is my experience. That is the glorious experience of any man or any woman who will come with understanding to the scriptures and believe that Jesus Christ's blood has the power to remove your sin now. Praise God he removes the drug addiction. Praise God he breaks the power of adultery and fornication. Praise God he breaks the power of anger and bitterness. Praise God he breaks the power of lying and cheating and stealing. Praise God he turns us into a new creature that no longer walks in sin. Now am I saying that a Christian cannot sin? Oh no, the scripture says a Christian can sin. I'll share that with you out of 1 John in just a moment. But the call of the word of God is to have victory in our lives over all sin and to live day by day as the normal Christian life without sinning against the Lord. Now, John Wesley was very helpful in breaking down the definition of sin. I'll get into this in much more depth later, but for now, simply, John Wesley taught that sin, according to 1 John, was rebellion. It was volitional. It was something I chose to do. People say to me, Pastor, what if I fall into sin? No, you never fall into sin. You jump into sin. Sin to be sin must be volitional. It must be voluntary. It is a decision we make. Now, he also spoke about immaturity. And according to John Wesley, and I believe according to the scriptures, immaturity is not sin. If we look at a one-year-old baby, or two-year-old baby, or three-year-old young man, they will do things in their immaturity that babies just do. That's immaturity. But if they were still doing those things when they're 30 years old, it's no longer immaturity. It's sin. It's rebellion. We don't treat a 30-year-old man the way we look at a two-year-old boy. Totally different. There is a word used in this email, progressive sanctification. The only progressive sanctification known in Scripture is the maturing process, not leaving your sin. John Wesley also taught 
that infirmities are not sin. If I go to the golf course and I hit the golf ball and I don't have par, I don't have a hole in one, I've missed the mark, but is that sin? No, that's not sin. I just lack the the mental and physical coordination to cause that ball to go into that hole. That's an infirmity. It's not sin. It's not voluntary. But all sin is voluntary. It is choosing to surrender to the power of darkness. It is choosing to walk in the darkness and not in the light. Now I'm going to continue reading for you briefly. So whether the sin nature be denied and consequently not removed, or it be denied that the sin nature can be removed in this life, the results are equal to each other. So for me, Plagius, in his heresy, was no worse than Augustine or Calvin or Luther. They simply stood on an opposite side of the coin, but it was the same coin. And both sides negated the work of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses have destroyed the person of Christ, while the modern church has destroyed the blood of Jesus Christ, and they have robbed it of its power. Thus the church has tampered with the scales of justice and truth. Positions which are equal to each other in result are treated as if different. History has rightly labeled Plagius as the heretic that he was, and wrongly distinguished Augustine, Luther, and Calvin as heralds of the truth, even though their false teachings are equal to that of Plagius in result. Now, a side note, I do not deny that Luther was mightily used by God to confront the church with its sin. But he came up with the wrong answers. He was right in what he did, but he was wrong in his conclusions. They are non-biblical conclusions. Here is it. How is it that two positions of equal result in plundering the gospel can be judged by history to be so different when both implicitly deny the blood atonement its essence, the removal of all sin in this life? Both positions are utterly false to the scriptures. Both leave man without the atoning benefits of the blood. Both are heretical, apostate, both deny the power of God unto salvation. There arose another voice of dissent on the ecclesiastical scene who did not travel with the crowd. Hovian by name, 350 to 405. This great worthy of righteousness was known by some as an unorthodox monk or a heretic. 
Others called him the last bright witness of the first century Christianity and the first torchbearer of the Reformation. Dr. Harnack, the great historian of Christian doctor, doctrine, says of Rehovian, and by the way, this is a very clear statement of my belief and what I teach on this radio broadcast. His main positions were as follows. The natural man is in the state of sin. Even the slightest sin separates from God and exposes to damnation. Regeneration is the state in which Christ is in us and we are in Christ. There are no degrees in it. For this personal relationship either does or does not exist. Where it does, there is righteousness. Where it does not, there is sin. To him too, the truth applies that there are no small and great sins, but that the heart is either with God or with the devil. Those who are baptized in Christ and cling to him with confident faith form the one true church. This position against the sinning Christian drew the resistance of the great theologians of that time. Augustine, Jerome wrote against him. Both Ambrose and the Pope called synods against him for his condemnation. Thus apostasy rolls on to deeper and darker falsehood. So, the ancient witness in the first two centuries by leading bishops of that day was that we were called to walk without sin in our life. And as John Wesley said, the sign of perfection in the life of a Christian is the outpouring of love, both from God, to God, and to our fellow men. And walking with no known sin. Now, Charles Finney came along and there are few who would dispute that Charles Finney was one of the greatest evangelists in history, bringing more people to Jesus than almost any other single person. Now, those of Reformed background quickly cast stones at him because they want to hold to their precious doctrines that are not found in the scriptures. They want to hold to their Gnosticism. These are very serious issues. Life and death hangs on what you decide about them. I testify that in my own life, Saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I want that same testimony in your life. Sealed by the Spirit of the living God, according to Ephesians, the first chapter. Being raised up with Christ and seated with Him as a present experience in the heavenly realm. But we'll get to those issues a bit later. Let's go instead now to the book of 1 John. I'm going to review just very quickly for those of you who are just joining the broadcast. I received an email. I'll read it for you. It's a very kind email. His questions are very sincere. He writes, Hi, Pastor Greenlee. I've been listening to your radio broadcast for a couple weeks now and have some concerns about some of your statements. It sounds a lot like you're claiming that we must not sin to be saved. Is this what you're stating? I agree that all who are saved should strive not to sin as we continue in our progressive sanctification, and one who continues in sin with no remorse or attempts to change their sinful condition demonstrates a sign they may not be regenerate. However, according to 1 John, we all sin, and to claim otherwise is to call God a liar. It sounds on your broadcast like you are saying all those who are saved do not sin and will not sin, and we know this untrue by Scripture. The Apostle Paul continued to struggle with sin after his salvation. Could you please clarify? And this comes from a doctor of theology. As I read this email, it's very clear that he believes very key parts that when they are all bound together seem like a cohesive whole. And they are, but they result in heresy. There are assumptions made in this email that simply are not true biblically. And I'm going to walk through these assumptions, and the first one I'm going to begin with is the keystone in 1 John, the first chapter, verse 8. He says, John, in 1 John, we all claim... We all sin, and to claim otherwise is to call God a liar. He's basing that statement on 1 John, the eighth chapter, the first chapter, verse 8. And so let's begin. That's, that's a very key element. And if we can demonstrate that that's not at all what that passage of Scripture is teaching, then we begin to make some progress in this careful examination of what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. And I'm going to share this not just in an academic way, but in an experiential way. For my interest is that all men would repent and turn from their sin and be saved, for God does not want any man to be lost. And so I'm going to share this in the Spirit of Christ that you might enter fully into the salvation of Jesus and be set free from your sins. Now, I, I must confess something to you. I have been utterly puzzled that this man and other men and women would so tenaciously hold to the doctrine 
that a Christian cannot be saved or that a Christian cannot stop sinning and that it's not necessary to leave sin in order to be saved. I'm puzzled that such a tenacious attitude should exist when to me the finest news I can hear is that the blood of Jesus breaks every bondage and sets me free so that I no longer am ravaged by the devil in sin. So I'm going to fight today for your freedom to set you free. And I plead with you to open your mind and your heart. We're going to pray now, and I'm going to ask Jesus to send his spirit to give us all understanding that we would not be deceived and we would not count as trivial the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, as we begin this study of your word, would you open our minds and our hearts that we might be able to understand? Would you bring revelation knowledge to our hearts and minds? Would you clear confusion? Would you clear away the errors that Satan has tried to bring into our hearts to prevent us from walking clean before you? I plead today your blood over each person listening to this broadcast. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the basic hermeneutical principles that I have found of extreme value is that I always read a passage in context. It's a great temptation to pull a passage out of a scripture and to wave it as our proof. When in fact, if we read it in the context of the passage, it's obvious that that interpretation is utterly false. And so let's read carefully, prayerfully, beginning with John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, that is Jesus, the Logos. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. The gospel of Jesus was that you could have eternal life, that you could be welcomed into the courts of heaven, that you could leave your sin and be washed clean. Now notice, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. If you do not understand what I'm going to share with you today, you will not have complete joy in Jesus Christ. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, 
in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin or from every known sin. So, let's read very carefully the context now as it has been given to us. John is saying, Jesus Christ is the one I proclaim. He is one with the Father. He's saying, if we claim to have koinonia, fellowship, leaning on, being supported by Jesus, if we claim fellowship with him, if we claim that we walk with Jesus, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. What is the darkness but sin? There is only one darkness in the world, and that is the power of demonic entities. It is the power of sin. It is being cast down. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, was the light that came into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in other words, part of a key part of the Gospel is that when we come to Jesus, the light of Jesus enters our soul, our being, and we walk in that light. We do not walk in darkness. He says, if you walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We do not live by Jesus. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies, purges, removes, removes all sin, every sin, continuous present, removes all sin. Everything is removed of sin from our hearts and our lives. This is a current experience described by John. Now he comes to verse 8. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, it's clear in the context of this passage that he is now stopping in his writing to the believers, and he's now speaking directly to the Gnostic belief who deny sin. They deny sin in the inner being and believe that sin is only of the flesh. And he's saying, if we, can, if we claim to be without sin, as you come to Jesus and you do not understand that you are a sinner, you cannot enter into Jesus. That sin must be dealt with. He's made his assertion, his argument is clear in verses 5, 6, 7. And now 8, he comes and he counters with those who will say, I don't, I don't need to repent. I don't need to enter the light. I am light. He's saying, no. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then notice, immediately he follows. You have to tie this with verse 8. Verse 9, you can't separate. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Now this word forgive in the Greek is aphime. And with aphime, it's a number of times in the scripture translated as forgive. Aphime is much more than forgive. I'm looking now at the at the Greek. And if you if you want to, you don't need to be a Greek scholar, just go to a Strong's Concordance. And this is what Strong says about this word. He says it means to send forth That is to send away, to send forth, to send away, to forgive. But it also means to forsake, to lay aside, to leave, to let alone, to put away, to remit, to yield up. That's what Strong's Concordance says this word means. This word aphemy cannot possibly be used in this passage if John is saying that we all continue to sin. It cannot possibly be that John is then saying that if we confess our sin, he is just and will send our sin away from us. There is a spatial element that is involved in this word. It is the removal of sin from our heart. It is not simply to forgive and say, okay, I've forgiven you, and you go back and you do it again. And you come back and you repent again. I recognize that for many Christians today who believe in progressive sanctification with sin, and I have to tell you, I believed that for many years, and it was so frustrating and agonizing in my heart. And I struggled against sin, and I struggled, and I could never gain the victory because I didn't understand that it was Jesus himself who comes and circumcises our hearts and that righteousness is not earned. Righteousness is a free gift given to us by Jesus. Just as he is willing to remove our sin, he is willing to give to us the gift of righteousness. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will affamy our sins. He will send them away. Not just forgive, but send them away. Separate us from our sin. And purify us, or purge us, or scrub us from all unrighteousness. 
This, the Apostle John is saying, is the gospel they received from Jesus Christ. Now, let's continue because I want you to see that, in fact, this is what John is teaching. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's read this in context. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. The entire first chapter of 1 John was written with the intent, according to John, that we would not continue to walk in sin, but rather we would be free of sin. We would walk sinless before God. Now, I have to tell you, when I began to see this, my whole heart rose up in opposition, and I said, this is utterly impossible. How can this be? It's not what I was taught in seminary or college. It's not what I was taught in the church. I was taught something very different. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. In other words, a Christian who is walking without sin may on occasion step back into sin. But he says, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. For we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And then if you go with me to the third chapter of the book of John, the third chapter. I'll begin reading to you from verse 2. Dear children or dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies, purges, removes sin just as he is pure. This is the current experience of a Christian, according to John. Everyone who sins breaks the law, for in fact sin is lawlessness. But we know that he who appeared so that, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, that he might remove our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So if you have continued to walk in sin in your life, John is saying you cannot be found in Jesus Christ. 
No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Then, very quickly, in chapter 5 of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Chapter 5, verse 3, verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We're out of time for this broadcast. I'm going to come back tomorrow. We're going to continue this. I'm going to continue answering this dear brother's email. These questions are of utmost importance. If you're walking in sin today, you have not yet been saved. To be saved means to be saved from your sin. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I urge you to pray about these things and to carefully read the context, the entire book of 1 John. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Great joy.